Fright Night Minute, a daily podcast where we discuss the original 1985 horror movie, Fright Night, one minute at a time. I'm Robin. I'm Len. And welcome back to our show for Minute 72, actor and composer, Lena Velasco. Hi, how are you? I am good. How are you? I'm doing fairly well. Thanks for listening, everyone. (laughs) And we're wrapping up. Thanks for listening. No. (laughs) Uh, it's been 24 hours. We've been waiting for uh, uh, to get back to this scene, but here we are. A minute 72 of Fright Night begins with Amy waking up and ends with Jerry getting a bit chesty. Hey, boy, you're much too much. So let's get together, baby. Let me come see you sometime. Uh, All right, so Amy wakes up on the floor of Jerry's bedroom, and uh, and yeah, the tape that Jerry popped in, like we said uh, yesterday, uh, is uh, Brad Fidel's score. And this was, uh, according to the trivia, this was originally going to be uh, Brad Fidel's vocal version of the song Come To Me. He has lyrics, um, and uh, they were going to play it. Um, Brad himself is not a big fan of regular songs being in movies, but he recorded it, and Tom Holland was like, that sounds good, we'll put it in the scene. But once they put it in, he felt like the vocals were fighting the dialogue for your attention. And uh, Brad says, I lost my objectivity because I performed it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that'll do it to you. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm sure you've heard uh, the vocal version of of Come To Me, right? Yes, yes, many times. We had uh, our guest uh, earlier in the season, uh, Christina Leakey, uh, who uh, performed the vocal version for You're So Cool, Brewster. Um, Did you guys work together on that, or was that a a separate thing? We did, actually. So what happened was she was uh, hired by Gary and Christopher, I think, Gary Smart discovered her somehow, somewhere. I, they told me the story, but it's like buried in an email from like ages ago. So I, I really don't remember. I apologize. But um, they had already, I guess, contacted her and wanted her to um, be a part of the documentary. And I guess they basically said, let's, you know, have her write a song for the end credits. So she had basically already... Her and I believe her husband, Dan, had already worked on the song and they had already written lyrics and all that stuff. And so when they came to me, basically all that I had to do for the song, which is titled Soul Desire, was I had to weave in the themes that I had written for the documentary. So there would be a kind of musical through line that continued from, you know, the main titles through the end credits. And I... I just kind of layered some more instrumentation on top. I changed the drum beat a little bit. Uh, I enhanced a few things, but I didn't really have to do a lot of work because what they delivered was pretty much a finished 
product in and of itself, you know, or, or piece of art, I should say, yeah. people hate when you call it a product, but, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, I didn't really have that much to do, uh, but I was glad that I was able to, you know, weave my themes in there so that, like I said, there was some sort of continuity going through from the beginning till the end. Cool. Yeah. But yeah. so, so like, you know, just in case people are wondering, you created the entire score for, uh, you're so cool, Brewster, the making of Fright Night. Um, how, how did you, uh, end up with the gig? So it's basically because I worked with Gary Smart on another project that was titled More Brains uh, Return to the Living Dead. And it was a documentary about The Return of the Living Dead, which is another cult classic horror film. And I was the music supervisor and I was on the production team and... I asked the director and producer if I could, you know, kind of, I was just starting to dip my toes into uh, film scoring because I have actually a couple degrees and one of them is in music and I felt like I wasn't really putting it to use. Um, So I said, do you mind if I write a few things? And they said, no, absolutely. You can work on special features and this and that and the other. And so I ended up scoring a bunch of the special features there. I ended up writing the main title for that documentary, which I collaborated with another composer on. He kind of did what I did on Soul Desire. He kind of polished it and added a few lines and things. And um, then since Gary had worked with me on more brains, when it came time to work on the Hellraiser documentary Leviathan, they contacted me because I'm I'm a very passionate like person. The things that I love, like I can't stop going on and on about. And one of my great loves is the music of Christopher Young. And so I post probably on a bi-monthly basis about how much I adore, you know, one of Chris's scores or one of his tracks or when I see him, you know, because we become friends over the years. And when I see him, I post pictures of us and, you know, this and that and the other. So Gary was working on Leviathan and he wrote to me and he said, we need a composer for Leviathan. Can you think of anyone? And I was like, hmm, let me start looking through my Rolodex. And he's like, stupid. I was talking about you. I was trying to be funny. (laughs) And I was like, oh, I, I didn't know. I mean, obviously he didn't say stupid, but but I was like, oh my God, I, I am so honored and flattered. And of course I would love to do this. And so that was the beginning of our partnership in terms of scoring. So when it came time to do uh, the Fright Night documentary, they just said, yeah, I mean, of course, we know you love it and we know it means a lot to you. So yes, you're doing it. So that's basically how it happened. I won't say it f- fell in my lap because I had to give them something they were happy with, sure. with Leviathan. But once I delivered on that, I think they you know, thought this guy can easily do Fright Night. Mm-hmm. So that's how I got the gig. Cool. Yeah. We, we talked a bit before uh, I hit record about how I know nothing about music except for, you know, I'm, I'm great at karaoke. Uh, <laughs> Len plays a bit of drums, uh, has been in a couple bands. Um, but, I mean, tell me what it's like to just create an entire score for something. It just seems like, gosh, like a monumental effort. It's daunting. I mean, I, that's the thing that I will say. When I first, the first thing that I ever scored was a a friend of mine who I knew many, many, many years ago, we worked at a movie theater together, go figure. He has since become a writer and director, fairly prolific and successful one. His name is Scott Shermer, and he directed a film called Found. And he had a couple scenes that weren't working, and he said... I, I, you know, he came to me and he started kind of pouring his heart out. And I was like, dude, that sucks. And I know what, it, you know, how frustrating that can be because I'd been on a couple of production teams up to that point on other projects. And I was like, I know how it feels when you just can't get the music right. And it seems like things just aren't working out. And 
a couple of days passed and he wrote back and he's like, wait a second, you know, film scores so well, like you live and breathe them. Why don't you try it? And I was like, like it was, it was very like terrifying, but I gave it a shot. It worked. And then a friend of mine heard that music and said, I want you to score my short film. And even though it's quote unquote, only a short film, it's still so daunting because if they don't give you temp tracks or anything like that, it's, on you to find out from them and communicate with them what exactly do you want we need to figure out what you want so i can give you what you want and it's also part of just watching the film i think and having a sense of what will work and i think part of that is knowing the history of film scores and knowing different genres and what works with different films and is this film similar to something you've seen and if it is what worked on that film etc etc so it's daunting but it's also, it's almost like a puzzle for me. Like when I sit down and I write, I don't, it's like I tell my wife sometimes, I don't know how it happens. It just kind of happens. Like often I don't write anything down. I'll just play music to the film as I'm watching it. And it, and I just go from there and it works. Hmm. Um, what do you kind when of, you're, uh, what do you kind of just like work with? Like initially, are you just playing on a piano or, or is it like a guitar? So I have, um, I have a synthesizer that's running through a MIDI port t- uh, attached to my computer that is running logic in Apple. So I port the movie into logic and then, um, you can watch the film as logic is running and whatever you play on the keyboard comes in through obviously the computer screen and the speakers. So, and that that has like the logic has you know a library of thousands and thousands of instruments so basically you can be anything you can just use piano you can do violin guitar whatever you need in any given scene it's just a matter of for something like this obviously for this and for leviathan you know the directive was very clear it has to sound like it was written either by the composer who scored the film, or it has to sound like it's very clearly being a tribute or an homage to that score. They did it because I've I've seen documentaries that don't do that, and I always honestly, in my opinion, not to disparage anyone, but I feel like it's a disservice to the documentary. Like you have a template laid out before you of what works for that film that you're talking about. Why would you not get the blessing of the composer and evoke those sounds and those instrumentations? And if, even if you're, I mean, you obviously don't want to copy them. So it's a really fine line, but you have to evoke something that's going to make the audience feel like they're back in that world while it's also different from what they've heard before. For sure. Did you, you I mean, they interviewed Brad for the documentary. I'm, I guess you must, you must have talked to him as well. If you said you're. Yes. Yeah. I actually, they, they, uh, I have the very great honor and pleasure of interviewing both Chris and Brad for the documentaries, uh, Leviathan and you're so cool because I mean, Gary and Chris were both really cool. they basically said, look, you're the musician. We have specific questions that we want asked, but we want you to basically do the interview because we know that you can speak their language and you can convey things that might not get put across as clearly by someone who is a non-musician. So, which is very gracious of them. A lot of the times, like, you know, directors are like, ah, it's my show, you know, but I think it, it was, it was a good thing because it made sure they got what they needed from the composers. So, and I did talk to Brad and I basically said, you know, this is my directive. 
just to let you know in advance, I said, if it's something you're comfortable with or not comfortable with, like, please discuss this with the production team. So, and, and I got to go ahead to, to go ahead and do what I did. So I'm assuming that everything worked out. Okay. <laughs> That's awesome. And, and yeah, some of it does feel like a, a, a tribute to the original. I mean, there's some, some, uh, uh some fun stuff with the, uh, you know, there's the, uh, Len's going to see this when he sees the documentary. He, I, I pretty much, uh, made him not watch it because I wanted to come in with all the trivia and have him instead of going, yeah, I knew that. Yeah, I knew that. <laughs> That's interesting. Uh, so, right. so, yeah, I, I promised him after we're done with this, I'm actually going to buy him a copy. And, and it's good to hear that uh, <laughs> we've got a new release coming out soon of uh, both Fright Night and uh, You're So Cool. I guess uh, I know what to get him for Christmas. So, <laughs> what, what was I getting to? Uh, so, yeah, it, the, the the Peter Vincent, uh, the guy uh, pretending to be Peter Vincent, those fun little things, you, you wrote some uh, uh, fun little numbers for, for those as well that don't sound like Fright Night, but it sounds like something that would be, I don't know, it just sounded fun. I, I don't know. Again, can't talk the language, but... <laughs> well, actually, it's funny that you mentioned that because my my when I watched those things and when I thought about the character of Peter Vincent himself... I was thinking in my head, I was like, what do I know that that can evoke this sense of pride and and almost uh, dignity, but also this kind of foolish, oh dear, because he is kind of a clumsy buffoon underneath it all. And immediately what came to me was Inspector Clouseau as portrayed by Peter Sellers in the Pink Panther films. And that was actually the Henry Mancini uh, theme for Inspector Clouseau is what became my template for <laughs> the cool. structure uh, of that theme. So yeah, that's. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I'm glad it worked. <laughs> that's so cool. Uh, that's so cool, Brewster. Um, uh, Brad, uh, we found out, you know, through reading up on it, uh, that what I originally thought the many, many different times I've watched Fright Night in the score is was electric guitar is actually an electric violin. Did you yes. indulge in any of that at all while composing? Yeah. Yeah, I actually, I I talked to Brad at great length about that when we interviewed him, and he mentions it in the documentary. Um, and I, I kind of picked his brain a little bit about it when I was getting ready to, you know, to score. And initially, I wanted to have a friend of mine, Elizabeth Hedman, who's an extremely talented violinist that plays for scores by Alan Silvestri, Randy Newman, John Williams, you name it. Um, she was going to record the electric violin part for me. And eventually, what happened was we just, we couldn't make the schedules work out. So I ended up just getting a, um, what I felt was a pretty decent sampler sound of it. And then I put it through a filter and engineered it just a little bit. So it would sound, you know, about as close as I could get it to without being the exact same thing. That's so cool. Oh my God. I'm saying it again. You're so cool, Bruce. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. And yeah, so people, uh, you should check out a little score on, uh, the year. So cool Brewster, uh, documentary. And you said you're on uh, Leviathan as well as, uh, did you say more brains? More brains. More brains. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Any other ones that you've worked on that you want to, uh, uh, let people know about? I mean, there's a lot of short film stuff that I've done, like uh, Nightmare on Elm Street short films that are out there. And I scored a short film for a friend of mine that's a, a filmmaker that actually my wife is one of the stars in. And I have a couple of projects coming up later this year for uh, feature films and short films. So my, my IMDb is slowly growing as I get more and more um, 
uh, daring with, you know, the tasks ahead of me. Want to score a feature? Uh, I guess so, you know. <laughs> so. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we should definitely get into this scene. Uh, yes. A lot of people are uh, waiting for us to talk about this uh <laughs> Fireplace yes. Rumble. And it's funny, uh, you know, these few minutes, like, uh, writing notes about them, you know, I, I always I feel a little, you know, like I'm kind of blushing as I'm writing some of the stuff that's happening on the screen. Uh, we, had a hard, we had a hard time during the dance. We had a girl here, so it was, it was like a safe place. So we're going to try to stumble through uh, these without saying anything uh, too too naughty. Who's we? <laughs> okay, I am, I am. Speak for yourself. All right. <laughs> Anyway, that's all to say. Amy's looking really good in this dress. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> uh, the skin is very nice and tanned. I mean, just like uh, she's just gorgeous. Um, very defined arms. Yes. Yeah. Uh, her hair seems to be. I mean, she got the kind of like the Sheena Easton look. I, I called it in the club. Uh, yep. <laughs> but now her hair seems to be kind of back to normal again. Uh, it's still kind of teased up a little bit. The, the butterfly clips are definitely gone though. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Thank God. <laughs> so uh, Amy looks around, uh, and first she sees a painting of a woman with a hand fan. And I didn't notice this before until watching it second by second, but uh, you see on the chair next to the painting Amy's shirt and Amy's uh, little purple jacket. So yep. this kind of explains why when we cut back to her, she looks down and then she notices what she's wearing. Because she's mm-hmm. watching the scene, I always thought she was kind of looking at the painting. Uh, you know, because she's looking at painting, painting, painting. But at first, she's kind of looking over and seeing her her clothes over there. Yeah, I'd never noticed that before. So this kind of brings up an uncomfortable topic. Uh, do you think Jerry dressed her while she was unconscious, or did vampire trance Amy kind of dress herself and then fell asleep on the rug? I think Billy came in and did did it. Did God? I hope did not. Did Evil Ed do it? <laughs> And he, get, I don't know, he I, cackled the entire time. Baby! <laughs> Boobies! Yeah. I, I think it had to be Jerry. Like, I mean, I think he probably did it like a gentleman. Yeah. Like, honestly, when I think about how he would have done it, I really do think that he would have, like, turned his head away or closed his eyes or whatever. Like, which people, I, I've had that discussion actually with people, and there are people that are like, oh, come on. And I'm like, well, but, but like, look at what happens with the rest of the scene. Yeah. I could see him doing that. I really could. Right. Then she sees a painting of a woman deep in thought. And honestly, uh, you know, terrible uh, talking about music. Also, wish I knew how to identify art because these look like famous paintings, but I could not tell you, especially that second painting. It That definitely looks like a, a famous painting that I should know, uh, but uh, I definitely can't identify. So you, you could just use Google goggles. That's fine. Google goggles? <laughs> yeah, Google goggles. If you're ever interested, put your phone up to the screen and take a picture and put it through Google goggles and it can identify almost any piece of artwork. Did a baby come up with that name? <laughs> I, I probably, I don't know. <laughs> uh, okay, well, uh, uh, Len's trying it right now, but I'll, I'll move on. Um, <laughs> then uh, she sees a painting of someone who looks just like her. And uh, what are the had a surprise gasp. <gasps> yeah. Uh, so do you think uh, Jerry painted that himself back in the day or he had that commissioned? Billy did it. Huh. Or did, yeah, did he Billy? <laughs> it's Billy painted. I don't think Billy's been around that no, long. No, no, no. Well, who knows what Billy is, so who knows how old he is. Yeah, true. <laughs> I, don't, 
I think I think it's a commission. He, yeah. although again, you know, he's such a suave fellow. Who knows? Maybe it's one of his many talents. Right. Just seems like an like a yeah. I'm sure he can cook too. Gentleman vampire. Yeah, he knows how to cook. You know, uh, mostly just the recipes with blood. <laughs> blood sausage. <laughs> I'm so tired of this recipe. <laughs> Gotta try something new. Um, so then Amy notices Jerry standing there in front of the uh, stereo, kind of deep in thought himself, and, uh, and he says, she's someone I knew a long time ago. And I wonder if all these paintings are, some, are, are people he knew, or was it just the Amy painting? Huh. Hmm. I never gave that a thought, actually. <laughs> I, I wonder, maybe the second woman, the one that looks like she's in thought, or she's, she almost looks like she's thinking of something naughty when you look at it. Um, <laughs> Maybe maybe she was too. Who knows? Yeah. The abstract painting is a little more like I don't know. Maybe not, but who knows? Yeah, it's a good thought. It's a good thought. Well, you know, it seems like the first painting, like they they all like the first painting is the oldest one. Then the then yeah yeah it seems to get newer and newer. Um, but uh, so yeah, Jerry turns to Amy with a he's got like a, a warm expression, um, and uh, and I think it's great because I think. Uh, Jerry is, you know, thinking about the Amy that he had in the past, and now it, it kind of makes him happy that he's got her here again. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder, well, I don't even know, could this be a girl that he knew before he was a vampire? Like, uh, I just, you know, again, making up Jerry's backstory, exploring, uh, you know, Anakin Skywalker here. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe she's the one that turned him. Ooh. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's his sire. Oh, man. Uh, Amy, however, it seems to me uh, definitely out of out of the trance that she was in at the club. Um, yeah, until he turns around. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. So, so my question is, you know, like, did did Jerry could Jerry have just like let her sober up, quote unquote, so we could kind of get the get the seduction on again? Like the the thrill of the hunt might be better than the taste of victory, so to speak. Hmm. Yeah, and again, I think that's something that. It goes back to that whole. I think it, even though he is a monster, there's this scene is one of the gems again. It's followed up by that that scene we discussed yesterday, that has such humanity and such you know pathos in it. This scene has such humanity within Jerry. I think that there is a gentleman underneath that monster, and I think for him, like you know, I, I don't want to use the word that I'm thinking, but to to do something to her when she's in that state would almost be yeah. it would go against who he is like that's yeah. not what he wants to be ever you know he wants to always have his because even before in the film when you know he pulls down the shade I don't think you know that girl is just loving every moment of what he's doing to her in that bedroom and I think that's part of the conquest the gentlemanly conquest if you will I don't like to use that word but you know what I mean sure. it's it's better and it's more noble than, hey, she's a crazed, you know, trance girl. I'm going to just go to town. Like, that's, that's something, there's something so impure about that. I, I don't see Jerry ever doing that. So, as the minute starts to wrap up, uh, Jerry approaches her, and uh, to me, like, he's kind of looking down at her with pity almost. I mean, is that the right word for it? It just seems like, it, like almost like a sympathetic, um, like, he knows what's coming. Maybe he wants to preserve this moment a little bit. Yeah, either pity or, or when he's walking, when he's crossing the room towards her, there's almost. To me, the look on his face is almost one of, like, 
not smug, but there's a there's a kind of gentle confidence there. I, I don't know if yeah. it doesn't strike me as pity so much as there's just a gentle confidence of I'm going to be the most noble guy I can and I'm going to be gentle and and everything. But I know this is going to happen either way because I've done this a million times. Right. And I know that I've got my shirt open, but I also do <laughs> do have my pants pulled up to my nipples. <laughs> It was the 80s. Everything was different. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I don't know, maybe it's... Go, go a little bit closer. Go a little bit closer, like, you know, frame by frame here. And maybe it's just when he gets close. I was wondering where I got this, this idea about the pity thing. No, when he, when he gets closer. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe... Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what I was thinking. So, yeah, then he takes the shirt off, and uh, he's... Yeah! yeah he <laughs> presents the nipples, and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that's what the minute ends. But uh, I, I definitely thought, like, he looks kind of scrawny once he gets all that, that wardrobe off, you know? It, it was the 80s. Everything was different. Yeah. <laughs> no, well, yeah. All the, all, think of, like, Harrison Ford in the first Indiana Jones film. Mm-hmm. He's not buff. He got pretty buff for the second one. Yeah, for Temple, he's definitely buff. Uh, but but still, yeah. not, he's buff in, like, that Magnum P.I. kind of way. He's yeah. not, he's, yes. Which yeah, that's definitely it. That's definitely it. Right. It's like a, that's the that was a what men looked like then. You didn't have that Fight Club, you know, male model eight pack. That I don't you know I don't know yeah. when that started, <laughs> but I don't fucking like it. <laughs> yeah, screw those guys. Right. You know, I'd, I'd be happy to look like Jerry Dandridge as he is now. You know, I don't even need to work on the muscle or anything. But uh, yeah, I. I've discussed that actually. It's funny that you mentioned that because I've discussed that with my wife and with other people that like male heroes in the 80s, like even in Temple of Doom, Harrison Ford is like he's cut, but I wouldn't say he's buff compared to like Marvel heroes. Like Marvel heroes, you look at them and you're like, oh, shut up. Just go away. (laughs) Like it's just ridiculous. Like even Tony Stark, like in the first Iron Man when he's pounding away that and that cave and making that you're like your arms are more built than Harrison Ford's in Temple of Doom that's not right Right. like I don't know when that transition occurred but it's it's crazy to look at the difference. Right. It was a big boom in the personal trainer market, I would say. Oh, well, those, oh yeah. these guys the are doing. story of uh, Indiana Jones, Harrison Ford worked with Body by Jake uh, day in, day out to get ready for Temple yep. of Doom. Yeah, so. and then he broke his back, so. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, but, um, yeah, I think that's uh, that's about all I have for this minute. Uh, do you guys have anything else you want to talk about? Nipples. Nipples? <laughs> <laughs> I just want to reach out and go. Uh, <laughs> so I almost uh, I wanted to mention one of the great things that's come from the collaborations uh, that I've done in terms of Fright Night um, when I did the Monster Palooza gig that we will talk about um, uh, playing Jerry Dandridge. One of the gifts that I got from the two makeup artist who spearheaded the project we're talking about paintings of beautiful women and i think there is a picture of it on my instagram if i'm not mistaken they gave my wife and myself as a gift for our anniversary and for my birthday 
this year, they had one of the photos that one of the photographers took um, at Monster Palooza. They took that photograph and they turned it into an oil painting that they commissioned. And it's it's about three feet by five feet, and it's like a vertical painting, and it's hanging in our bedroom. So I have, like Jerry, I have my my lifelong love hanging immortalized in art in my bedroom. And so it's, cool. It's it's so crazy because it's like it's creepy because like I have my hand wrapped around her throat, but she's staring. She's staring up at me with this kind of longing in her eyes. So it's like it's just perfect. And it's again, it's timeless. Like we'll look at that for decades and just always kind of sigh at just the beauty of it, what it means and what it encapsulates and what it meant to get it from those people. That's awesome. We should actually get ourselves commissioned for this podcast and see if anybody will paint us. Yeah. Yeah. And you never know. Or something. <laughs> all right. I'm just thinking about the end of Ghostbusters 2 all of a sudden. I don't know why. <laughs> Lino, you want to let people know where they can find you on the interwebs? On the interwebs. Gosh, our, our best friend and savior. Um, yeah, if, if people want to go... <laughs> yeah, oh, sadly. If people want to go to Instagram, they can find me at Lito Velasco 23. They can find me on Facebook, my pl- public profile page. Just search Lito Velasco, and you'll see the artist page on Twitter. You can search Hollywood Lito. And on YouTube, you can search Hollywood Lito as well. And is there anywhere that people can uh, have a listen to uh, some of your score at all for, for the documentary? Is that publicly available? So here's what I always tell people. Um, I am working on a release of unreleased music from a lot of scores that I that I've done over the years that will be called Unearthed Voices and it will feature some of the score to your so cool Brewster. Unfortunately, for various reasons, I cannot sell the complete score, but there might be a chance that if someone contacts me through any of those social media outlets that I mentioned and they're really nice and they ask kindly, I don't know, maybe my wife will be able to dig up a copy and send it to them somehow. I mean, I'm not saying that'll happen. I'm just saying it could happen because she's really nice. So, yeah. So if someone behaves very nicely, yeah. they'll get a copy of the score. I'm actually feeling kind of nice. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Add it to the Fright Night collection. Definitely. (laughs) Perfect. Put it right up there with everything else. Oh, you jealous bastards. He can curse as he walks by the remake, and then he sees your your score sitting there going, okay, all right, I'm better, I'm better. He feels better all of a sudden. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, let's put a stake in this minute. Uh, Please follow us on Twitter at Fright Night Men. Send your feedback to FrightNightMinute at gmail.com, and please rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. And until next time, I'm Robin. I'm Jerry Highwater. And I'm Lito. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Have a fright night, everyone. He's a vampire. A what? (laughs) (laughs) You're so cool, Brewster.